I would say that the most important thing if you want to prepare yourself for the technology boom is to ensure that each individual in the organization counts, in every organization, in creating a culture of technological learning, of technological friendliness inside your organization is the number one thing. So I'll give you an example. We're a tiny little company, right? But we have two teams, one in New York, one in, in India. We're a global company. So what we do is just like everyone else. What we do is we, we do um, meetings, company meetings by Zoom. But one of the things we do at every Zoom meeting on the agenda, I go around and I ask people, okay, what do you want to talk about today? And I write down items, what people want to talk about. And at the end, I always say, does anyone have any fun technology thing to share? And it had, it really made a difference in one element of our business. So we are like thrilled with it. But it's that's an example of how you can best prepare for technology. It's create a, an atmosphere of technology friendliness in your teams. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. We are on episode 17 today. I'm Roman Zelchenko, your host. I'm an immigration lawyer turned immigration tech startup founder and entrepreneur. I am the founder of Laborless, which is an H-1B compliance automation tech software, as well as GMI Rocket, the company that is bringing you this show. And I'm really, really excited today to have Sam Udani on the show. Uh, Sam Udani is a really fascinating, interesting character in the immigration space because so far we've talked to a lot of immigration you know, tech founders strictly and immigration lawyers who are doing some things on the marketing side. And today we're talking about sort of the combination of tech and marketing in conjunction with the publication of content. Sam is the CEO and publisher at ILW.com, which is a fascinating and incredible resource for immigration content, has free articles and just so many resources uh, for immigration law and immigration lawyers, and of course, individuals who are looking into immigration uh, stuff and, and want answers. So really excited to have Sam on the show. And Sam, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really excited to have you. Delighted to be here, Roman. So Sam, you know, we were chatting a little bit before this, and I, I kind of love to start in the beginning, because we're going to get to and we're going to talk all about everything you've done, your illustrious career and the incredible sort of you know, content and, and information you provided for the entire industry, really the entire world, right? Um, in terms of folks who want to come to the U.S. from an immigration standpoint. But you, you know, you're an immigrant yourself, and I am too. Um, I, I, you know, I'd love to, if you could share a little bit about where you were born and, and sort of a little bit about what it was like for you as you immigrated over to the U.S. Uh, sure. I'll keep it short, though. I was born and brought up in Bombay, India. I came here when I was around 20 years of age, and I came to New York City. And um, perhaps I can tell you some of my first impressions when I landed in New York. And my first impression was, where are all the people? It's empty. <laughs> and that was standing in the middle of Times Square, because I was from Bombay, India, which is an incredibly crowded city, 10 times more people even then, even when I came in 1987. It was 10 times more crowded than New York was. So my first point was in New York when I first arrived was, it's all empty. I thought it was a big city. What's going on? Where are all the people? There's no people. And uh, my next question was, my next question to myself was, wow, how fragrant. New York City is so fragrant. How clean. Oh, it's incredible. There's no wow. smell and there's no garbage in the street. So I had, a, I had a terrific blast as an immigrant coming to New York. And uh, it's very different. 
reaction than most immigrants have, <laughs> but uh, or most Americans have for that matter. But I had a very, very amazing time in New York. I've been here now 33 years, more than 33 years. Yeah. That's so funny because as a New Yorker and, you know, knowing so many people outside of New York City, they come here and they're like, wow, this place is stinky. It smells like garbage, especially during the summer. <laughs> so it's actually uh, really funny that, that you, because when, when you said fragrant, I thought you may have been um, joking, but it sounds like at the time you were very serious that it actually smelled quite good in comparison. Well, absolutely. It was very fragrant. And, and I said, how is it so quiet? Mm -hmm. No, no noise at all. There's nothing. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, okay. So you, you came, you moved here when you were 20. Did you come here by yourself or with yeah. them? No, it was just me. It was just me. And then I was involved in the chemical industry for about uh, four years. I used to buy and sell chemicals, uh, principal polymer resins. I used to buy from Mexico, Brazil, and the United States, and I would sell it in Europe, Asia, and Africa. Uh, it was it was a short time. But then in any case, after that, I, I entered the immigration field. I was uh, I co-founded an ad agency. Uh, which did labor search advertising. Uh, in a way, I co-founded that whole sector. Today, there's about half a dozen companies doing it. Between them, collectively, they employ maybe 75, 100 people. So I was a pioneer in that industry and um, um, uh, established many of the practices that uh, are common in the industry today. Uh, th at that time, uh, before that industry existed, uh, you know, immigration attorneys and corporations and even individuals, you know, it was very painstaking and troublesome. You had to figure out how to place the ad, um, Frequently, there were errors in the ad. The ads had to be rerun. Uh, it made the recruitment process very complicated. And now, you know, by assigning it to a specialized group of people who specialize in doing these things, you can use abbreviations and all of that to, you know, reduce uh, the cost and make the whole process more efficient. I remember there was a time when I used abbreviations in an ad <clears throat> in a journal and uh, the labor department denied the ad, uh, denied the labor certification case on the grounds that the, the abbreviations were improperly. And, um, uh, you know, we always believed in supporting our client. Our client came to us for help. And I said, look, I'll find you the supporting authorities. And I went to the New York Public Library and I consulted the dictionaries from the de Department of the Army, the Department of the Air Force, uh, you know, many other government dictionaries, you know, of abbreviations. And I supplied that proof and I forgot all about it. I mean, it was just standard way to, you know, give customer service. And then the next thing I knew, I was getting a call a year later. From uh, Joel Stewart, who used to read every single Balka decision, probably still does, a great Balka maven. And uh, he said, oh, Sam, you're going to have a great time in advertising now because now you can do abbreviations. And it took three minutes during the conversation before he realized, and I realized it was the same case that I had written and Balka had quoted from my you know, statement that I'd given to the, to the client and uh, had said as to why abbreviations are useful and not useful. So... Now, today, you know, all over the country, there is thousands and maybe tens of thousands of labor set ads, and they all use abbreviations. And it dated back to that Volker case. So, yeah, it was a, it was a fun time. So I spent about... So I, I, I want to, I, I just want to make a note that, number one, that's incredible, because essentially you lawyered your way into not just advocating for your client, but essentially moving forward something within the immigration space, specifically the use of abbreviations and, and permads. But... Just as a as a note, as a very important note, you were not a lawyer. You you went to this, you know, you went to the library, you pulled all these resources, clearly put together a compelling, you know, argument, but you are not a lawyer. No, I'm not a lawyer. And I'll tell you my educational background in brief. I'm a high school graduate. Uh, so uh, in India they call it junior college. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it's it's eleventh and twelfth grade. So that's comparable to you know, high school graduate. And in my um early days in school, I was um 
I was a very good student. I worked very hard. I was usually first, not always, but usually mm-hmm. first of, in my class. And I decided I did not want to continue formal studies anymore. You know, later on in life, I realized that there are some people who learn very well in structured settings like universities. And there are some people like me who learn much better in unstructured settings. And uh, there's a mismatch for people like me in the educational system. So, but I learned that much later. So at the time, uh, I mean, my parents were furious. My parents were furious. I mean, both my parents had master's degrees. Both my grandparents were, were, were what were called matriculates, which was very high in, in the 1920s to be that was, was a big deal. And there was a you know, long history of education and scholarship in my, uh, in my family on both sides for a long time. So my parents were furious. My father said, you're not going to be a bum on my money. And he threw me out of the house. Wow. Um, <laughs> and my, my, the, my argument was uh, that, Dad, I, I know more than some of my professors, which, which was true. And uh, in the Indian context, uh, that, that was a serious accusation. And, uh, and, and if true was something that, that had to be taken into account in making a decision. In any case, he, we eventually um, made a compromise and he said, okay, get it out of your system. I'll give you money for one year. And if either at the end of one year, you got to be either supporting yourself or you got to go to, uh, you know, get at least a bachelor's degree. I mean, they thought I would get a minimum of a PhD, uh, you know. Wow. But, <laughs> but anyway, so that's what it is. I, I, I've, uh, I, I continue to read a lot. I've read well over 10,000 books. And, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly don't con- consider myself uneducated, but I'm uneducated formally. Right. Uh, I've been educated informally. And now what did you do for that year? I mean, you know, because that's that's the that's that that's the kind of compromise a lot of people end up probably do making with their parents. And then sometimes they make it other times they don't. It sounds like you made it. So, you know, what, what happened during that first that one year? Yes. Yeah, so I, I was uh, you know determined not to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, I did listen to my dad and met the principal of the college that he made an introduction to, St. Xavier's College, Bombay, uh, which was which was a decent school. But I, and he said, you would be happy to admit you. You have more than enough grades to come here, but we've got to follow the system. And the next availability is nine months out or whatever. But I, I, I ended up in publishing, actually. And that's why my return to publishing in 2000 was not um, not something accidental. I always wanted to be in publishing. And I did conventional publishing in those times. So there was a, I launched a magazine in India. And uh, then I, I bought and sold electronic goods, uh, typewriters, calculators, computers, things like that for about four years before I came to the United States. But um, so I, I, when I founded the ad agency, yeah, it's, you know, a lot of people think of the ad agency as, uh, as connected to publishing. Actually, it's not. As we all know, it's, it's part of um, placing labor cert ads is, 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 is a paralegal service. It's, it's not a publishing service. Um, whereas if you're doing ads for, let's say, Coca-Cola or anything like that, that is more closer to publishing. Uh, but I always wanted to be in publishing. And uh, that's when, you know, when the dot-com boom t- took off. I mean, I sent my first email in 1987. Wow. I was all over the Internet long before there was a World Wide Web. And, uh, you know, when, when I, I love the modern technology where you press a button and you reach thousands of people in seconds. I said, well, that's fantastic. You don't have to pay for ink or printing or paper or postage. And I said, that's fantastic. It's fast and it's cheap. And uh, the information flow is, 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 when you speed it up, it can really change people's lives and help people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's why I wanted to get into publishing. But I had built over the years a lot of you know, connections in the immigration field, a lot of people I knew. And I, I did not want to leave it because I said, these are good people. These are, this, this industry is full of good human beings. So I kind of compromised in 2000 when, when, or 1999 when I, when I you know, uh, got involved in ILW and I said, 
I'll be in publishing, which is what I always wanted to do, but I'll also be uh, in immigration because I'll do immigration publishing. And fortunately for me, it's been 20 years plus now and uh, it's worked out. So, and that, that that's amazing. And it's it's cool that you kind of, your first venture, you know, which really, I suppose, was initially so that you don't have to go to college, has now, you know, made a comeback and really flourished into into the bulk of your career. Um, so just just so I, I kind of have it straight, you you moved in, you moved to the U.S. in um, nineteen in nineteen ninety. You said eighty seven. Eighty seven. Got it. Uh, at the age of twenty, and so it sounds like you were you started this publishing company basically after you when you were about eighteen years old. No, no, no. I, I, I was doing publishing in India in, yeah. uh, when it was, I was about 17, 18. 17. Yeah. So, somewhere around there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you, you were doing that. And then eventually you said, you know what, Hey, I'm doing well enough. I clearly don't have to go back. I don't have to go to St. Xavier's. Um, and then B you decided to come to America. I'm curious why at that time did you decide to move? Cause it, you moved here you said yourself, it wasn't through a family uh, reunification process. So I'm, I'm curious kind of if you remember, what was your thought process back then when you decided? Oh, I remember very clearly. And it is uh, true for most immigrants. You know, it's, it's not a small thing. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes people in America, they, they forget that immigration uh, is, is, uh, is, has two sides. There's push and there's pull. And uh, we as Americans here in America, we can only do the pull part, right? We can't control the push part. And if you look at human beings, individual human beings making decisions all over the world, um, it's both push and pull, you know? And in some cases, push will be stronger. In some cases, pull will be stronger. Uh, and it depends on each individual. In my case, it was clearly push. Um, you know, I, um, I I had everything in India. I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything more. I uh, uh, knew a lot of people. Uh, in Bombay, there was not a single major building that I hadn't been in or I knew someone in. And, uh, you know, my, my family had been in Bombay for four generations uh, uh, there's not that many people in the world who whose families have been in large cities in one large city for four generations. So uh, when, when, when that happens, you have a tremendous amount of connections and knowledge at, at every level, top, middle, bottom, and any large city. You need to know people at all levels if you want to get the, your work done. Um, so I had everything. I mean, I, I, there was not a single labor union, for example, where I didn't have a connection, uh, knew someone. There was not a single major company in Bombay where I didn't know someone. But I had to leave everything because it was difficult to remain honest and still continue to do business. You know, there was bribery everywhere. And bribery never bothered me because I always looked at it as a cost, simple. But in addition to paying the bribe, uh, you had to, you know, lick the feet of the folks um, uh, who were the bureaucrats uh, who held your business in their hands. And I wasn't prepared to do that. And I said, I don't know. I, I, you know, I'd read a few books about America and I was I, I, I never watched movies very much. So my only connection to America was reading, you know, the almanac or whatever. And I, I was not sure whether America was going to be a country where where I could honestly do business. I didn't know. I said, maybe not. I don't know. I'll try. If it doesn't work, then maybe somewhere on this planet, there is a place where I can be honest with myself and still, uh, you know, conduct business. I don't know, but I got to try. And uh, that's why, you know, most immigrants come to America expecting um, uh, a lot and uh, streets paved with gold and get disappointed. I came here expecting the books I had read told me America was, you know, there was a time when it was a great country. There were the founding fathers and everything. There was freedom and there was everything else. And all of that had gone to hell in a handbasket. And America was going down the tubes is what I had thought. And when I came to America, I said I, I was like so happy 
to find that it was it was an amazing place where people were honest with each other and could talk to each other and um, and I I've been happy you know uh, a tremendously happy immigrant ever since. That's so inspiring. Yeah, I, I love that. You're right. I mean, so many people come here because of the vision they have of America, which is built from books or movies or a combination or family members who paint a picture that may or may not be true. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really definitely definitely a challenging life uh, move. So you came here. You 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 said you worked in chemical trade, etc. Um, and so, what was the first venture? It sounds like the first venture that you got into with respect to immigration was publishing. Was advertising. Remember, I told advertising. you for, for, for 1992 right. to 2000, I was um, involved in an ad agency. Uh, it was me and my good friend, uh, who, by the way, I worked with. Uh, he and I worked together in the same room for three years before we realized that our dads had worked together in India wow. on the first computer project. They were in the first group of programmers ever trained in India. There were four programmers trained by IBM. They were two out of the four. Wow. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know that. For three years, we worked together and we didn't know that. That's incredible. How did you, how did you find it? How did you figure that out? I'm curious. Well, we were talking about our past and our, yeah. we got to talk about our dad. His dad was called Sam too, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, and it, it was crazy that... Uh, that you know, it's a very small world. You know, you learn that sometimes. <laughs> how did you? How did you two decide? And then what was your partner's name? Uh, Fahad. Fahad. So, so how did you and Fahad decide to go into this uh, space? Well, it, it's it's a long story, but essentially, we stumbled into it. Is the right mm -hmm. uh, way to put it? And uh, uh, we were surrounded by four immigration lawyers who gave us the idea, actually. And uh, we were earlier doing a, another venture which was in publishing, it was in list processing, uh, and that failed. Uh, but, you know, we were trying to get some things done, and the attorneys gave us this idea, and uh, mm -hmm. we got started with it. It was Fahad's venture, and I, 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 I co-founded it with him, that's true. But um, uh, I always wanted to be in publishing. So when it came to, you know, after eight years, when we built it up to 11 people, uh, you know, I wanted to get into publishing, so we had a very friendly party. So uh, I've been very happy in publishing. I'm, I'm a happy... Uh, even though you know no, we don't charge for immigration daily, we've never charged, we never intend to charge, uh, but it is something that I deeply believe in, and I'm hoping that uh, until all of this hair turns white and falls off, I'll still be doing it. Your hair looks fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, for, for those who are listening, full head of dark, dark hair. Uh, <laughs> so, so great, you were an advertiser, you know, you, you built up this business, so it's presumably you kind of started to learn a lot more about the immigration process through working on these perm ads. And of course, through your own uh, immigration experience as well. Well, I'll tell you what happened if you want to know about the uh, legal part of it. Is that something or you want to go into technology? If it's no, time? no, let's absolutely. I'm curious about both. Yeah. So what I, I learned very quickly within the first, um, I would say, three months of being in immigration law is that there is no, there's no big three here. There's no General Motors, Chrysler's, or Ford. The largest law firm in America has maybe 2% of the country's cases or less. So what does that mean? It means that all the information is fragmented, and the government has all this centralized information, and they can use that to run circles around every attorney, uh, or for that matter, every corporation or every immigrant. It makes no mm -hmm. difference. And I said, gee, if I were, had only like two dozen or three dozen clients, just a small number, I would have 20, 30 times the perspective. And if I could spot a pattern, I wouldn't be stealing information from anyone. I'd just be sharing that. 
uh, with everyone. And I said, that would be a great way to add value. And that was my sales gimmick. I, I, I started a newsletter. Even in the ad agency, I started a newsletter. It was published twice a year. And it started as two pages and then eventually reached 25 pages. Wow. And that newsletter basically shared the patterns I saw. I didn't know what the patterns meant. The first pattern I saw was that the Connecticut Department of Labor gave um, job orders always on a Friday. Now, it didn't mean anything. I didn't know. I said, it's a pattern. I see it. And I shared it with everyone. And I kept on doing that. And the big break came with GL 197 in October 1, 1996, when there was a sudden change. And this was in the pre-Permira. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, you could do RIRs. And uh, at that point, you know, I, 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 I learned a lot. I could see the patterns across the country as to how the different CEOs were implementing it. And I published that as a big, fat 25-page, 26-page um, um, uh, newsletter. And uh, I started getting calls from, uh, you know, Ayla uh, chapter chair saying, we'd like to publish this in, uh, in our newsletter. Would you please give us permission? I said, sure. And then Ayla chapter started calling me and said, would you come and speak to our members about these patterns? I said, sure. And um, then eventually law firms started calling me and said, would you come and talk to our attorneys and paralegals about it? I said, sure. Uh, because from my point of view, it was free advertising, you know, and I loved it and I did it. And then it got to a point where some attorneys called me and said, look, uh, uh, you know, you're really giving us valuable information. We don't want it for free. Would you take some money from us? We'd like to pay you. <laughs> I was making an enormous amount of money in the year 1999, just talking to attorneys, going to their firms and speaking to their you know, associates and showing them how to do RIR cases. Uh, I would go into a firm, they would have a stack of 200 cases piled up and I'd ram through those in two hours, two and a half hours. You know? <laughs> That's incredible. You know that you're onto something good if uh, individuals are like, please, for the love of God, take my money, take my money. Um, I, I want to take a quick jump here just to see, we, we got a couple of comments here. So Mitch Adams uh, talking about your perspective initially when you were saying how New York City smells really nice and was very quiet. It's all about perspective, right? Right. Um, so thank you, Mitch. Um, we have Saja here saying hi from San Francisco. Sure. And, uh, hi, Saja. Yeah. Yeah. How she attended your seminar. So really wonderful. It, you know, obviously people are really um, appreciative of, of your work. Uh, and then Mary says, very interesting to hear your story. ILW has been my favorite resource. <laughs> thank you, Mary. The obvious. So, <laughs> If if you know that you're uh, you know you're doing something right, if people are offering you money and offering you uh, kind words, um, we've got Elena Anderson from uh, Maryland, DC area, saying ILW is a cornerstone of the industry. Ah, um, uh, thank and, you, thank you, Elena. <laughs> Very kind words. Yes, uh, really, really kind. Thank you all. So it sounds like at some point you were becoming an expert, right? Um, now, at what point did you sort of transition into, or perhaps in addition? this idea that technology should be part of the immigration um, yeah, yeah. ecosystem. Right. I mean, if I had kept on just doing what I was doing, which was helping attorneys become perfect with labor search, I'd have made a lot of money over the years. I'd be multimillionaire doing nothing else, but I loved publishing, wanted to get into publishing. Um, and publishing involved in those days a significant amount of technology, you know, in 1999. Uh, it wasn't as easy as it is today. Um, <clears throat> and um, there was no WordPress. Uh, there was no YouTube. There was no Google. Um, you know, it was it was a difficult situation to do publishing. You needed to have a lot of um, high tech stuff. I mean, what we put together as the basic production process for Immigration Daily 
uh, was done by my friend Anish, who was uh, at Oracle at the time, and uh, he left Oracle to join ILW. And he had put together the same backend uh, at CNN.com, which is the backend that we used at ILW.com. So, you know, it was an industrial strength backend that we put together. But technology, at least, you know, then and even today, I urge people to always think of it holistically. Technology is a tool to help you, you know, do your work uh, faster, easier, cheaper, smoother, and in every which way better. And at that point, I got this idea that, look, uh, there seems to be, you know, many disparate people involved in doing immigration cases. There's the attorney, of course, there's the corporation, and then there is the individual. And the data flowing back and forth, someone's birth date or someone's, um, you know, passport number or whatever, this data is flowing back and forth and multiple times it's, you know, do data entry again and again and again using everyone's individual computer. That's a recipe for, you know, causing a lot of errors and and angst and and trouble for people. Why not find a way to, you know, um, uh, uh, get this done? At the same time, that I was doing it, the same ideas had occurred to Umesh, uh, who later on, you know, who was founding INA Zoom at the time. And we were working on a parallel track and uh, we talked to each other at the time. Um, he's an amazing guy and really has changed a lot of people's lives. And so have the people who founded Tracker and founded uh, LawLogics too. You know, these are the three uh, pioneers of the industry. ILW was um, uh, older than Tracker, older than Logics. We, 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 were, we were around at the same time as Zoom. We were doing case, we call it case management, case management light, case tracking, what have you. And uh, it was it was in my mind in the same situation. We had 16 people in the company, eight in technology, eight in publishing, and we were one company. And we, uh, you know, built, um, uh, uh, we, we had about 36 law firms approximately, maybe maybe a bit more as, um, as, 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 as clients. And we learned the hard way. We were too far ahead of our clients. You know, I mean, uh, Umesh was a much better businessman than I. I charged too little. Uh, and um, and what I found was attorneys were very, very skeptical, as were corporations and individuals, to put their information in the cloud. The word cloud was so not something I used, not something anyone used widely in those years. So to put the, your information out there where someone else could might have access to it was a very scary proposition. Um, and, um, you know, it was difficult for us to sustain uh, the business. And my business partner, uh, Malai, who had, you know, a background in Adobe and... Uh, 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 Sony, and uh, he he wrote, for example, the well, I believe the um, first version of what ultimately became the MPEG standard, which is still used in the industry. Uh, what uh, is that? MPEG, 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 uh-huh. the MPEG Got standard. It. He he, he was he wrote um, he was one of the people one of the authors of the first mm-hmm. sta- first MPEG standard ever written in the early 1990s. Right, he was our CTO, or well, really the chief operations officer ran everything. Uh, my right hand, my good friend, uh, he was an amazing fella. Um, he still is an amazing fella. Uh, in any case, um, uh, so he had a lot of background in technology and, and he came to me uh, after two or three years of struggle where we were, you know, the, to make ends meet in the company was extremely difficult. And um, he said, look, you can either be a technology company or a publishing company. You can't be both. Mm. Um, and, um, and I'm telling you that I think a time has come for me to work myself out of this job uh, because I think that you'd be better off as a publishing company and we need to do something about the technology side. So uh, we did not want to abandon our clients. You know, there was 30, uh, three dozen law firms counting on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and fortunately, we found a, a company in Michigan who wanted to get into this space, and we sold our technology division to them, and they continued it for many, many, many years. I believe they're still around. Uh, so we are very happy about that, that we were able to, you know, provide a home to those attorneys who had trusted us. But uh, we, as a publishing company, we, we moved on to do seminars. We pioneered technology in seminars. We did 
um, you know, telephone seminars. And that was um, kind of a first in the industry where uh, attorneys, you know, dozens of attorneys, sometimes hundreds, would get together um, uh, by telephone, you know, uh, across the whole country. Um, and we would we would um, have a panel of uh, attorneys who were specialized in the subject matter that was being covered, and there would be question answers uh, that we would do. Uh, we did that for many, many years. We started doing book publishing. If, if we had done book publishing a bit early, I was scared to put money into, into the you know, uh, book inventory. If I had done it a bit earlier, uh, the history of the immigration law field would have been different. Um, our competitors would, would have been blasted out of existence, uh, all of them. Uh, nice. <laughs> but we were a bit, bit scared. We did it a bit too late. Uh, by the time we got around to doing it, books were already on their way out. Um, but that's what we did until the Great Recession struck. And, and, um, and just yeah. to give a, a little bit of clarification for those listening, Umesh, we're talking about Umesh Waidyamat, who's the yeah. CEO of INS Zoom, who's also a past um, guest here on the show. And uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you, because I think just to make it clear for folks, ILW existed before you took it over, correct? Yes. So it was a web hosting and web design company. Right. And the reason, that's all it did. So there's nothing that survives from the old ILW uh, at all. Everything I added, the reason I bought it was, the main reason was it had three letters. So it was easy to type, right? And it was an established company in the immigration space. So the hope was that I could convince maybe some of those web hosting and web design law firms. They had about 50 law firms, somewhere in that region, 50 law firms who were doing this, uh, you know, who needed a web host and a web design company. Um, and we even hosted ALA Canada for many years, Right. So the hope was that some of them would become customers for case tracking. It turned out to not have that much synergy, but that was the hope. So that's the reason why I acquired the domain. Uh, I did not acquire the company. I acquired the domain. The company remained in their hands. Mm. So I formed a new company and acquired the domain. Um, and um, and uh, that's that's how it happened. Okay, yeah, because I was going to ask you if you then were you had to continue hosting their websites, but it sounds like the individuals who you bought the domain from spun off a different company. And continued. No, no, no. We we continued to host them for a while. Again, just like the the the, the we give them some time. They were with us for about two or three years. Got it. And then eventually we told them that we had to get the reason we got out of hosting was because we got hacked in April two thousand two. We got hacked. That was the only one day we have missed. Only one day. Um, in Immigration Daily's publishing history in terms of publishing. We published on 9-11. We published in the Hurricane Sandy. We published in the blackout uh, of 2005 and the entire eastern seaboard. Didn't have power for three days. We published all the time. We missed only one issue was when we were hacked in 2002. And that's when we realized that uh, we couldn't be hosting so many websites with different software running. And that was the security required was totally beyond our ability and that we had to get out of the hosting business. So we explained that to our clients. We told them to, you know, encourage them to move as fast as possible. And I think it took us about two, three months, but we exited the hosting space at that time. And so, you know, the, the one more clarification that I was, I was curious about is, it sounds like when, as ILW grew both as um, a publisher and as a case tracking or case management platform back when you had both, it sounds like your technology business a little bit outgrew either the team or just, you know, there was some misalignment there between you and sort of the, com the, the technology where the industry was going. And so you exited that, um, you, you sold it to a, to a company. Do you, it, and you said the company's still around today. Emaxim was the company. Emaxim, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. And they're still around today, which is really, really cool, right? It's like the, the code that you wrote back then is, is probably hopefully to some extent still <laughs> alive and kicking. Um, did you, you know, 
as as somebody who kind of exited a, a company, but from the perspective of need, I suppose, instead of some sort of a financial windfall, do you think, um, you know, reflecting on it, do you think it's something that maybe if you stuck it out for a little bit longer, you think you could have salvaged or, or I don't know, do you ever reflect on that? Well, I mean, um, uh, let me put it this way. First of all, we lost a lot of money. We lost close mm. to a million dollars. Uh, wow. But our, our point was to to ensure that our clients who had entrusted their faith in us, we could try to give them a home. And we didn't. We feel very good about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we didn't make any money. We lost money. Uh, wow. Even after taking into account the, you know, the small, very small five-figure sum that we got for, for, the, for, the, you know, for the transition, we lost a lot of money. But um, in terms of... Um, uh, if we had stuck it out, we would have definitely died as a company. And mm. that would have been disastrous, not uh, not just for those who worked in ILW, but for all the clients and uh, all the other people in the history of this immigration space who have benefited from Immigration Daily. So uh, we had the right thing to move into publishing. And uh, eventually publishing died too, right? So in that recession of 2009, 2010, in this last decade, the American publishing industry has lost three quarters of its revenue and three quarters of its jobs. And it's technology which has done that. Right. Uh, we are right now here on LinkedIn and, and YouTube and other other platforms right now. And it's all amazing. This technology is dirt cheap and it's very convenient and it brings people information uh, in a in a timely manner. Um, so, uh, you know, why why have a tremendous expense if you can do it in a cheaper way? So um, it's um, uh, the world has changed. Technology has changed the world. And I can tell you something. You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. The next five to 10 years are going to bring such technological change as will make the last 10, 20 years look like a stone age in comparison. <laughs> so, and, and that I, I kind of want to jump to that. Before we do that, I do want to just point out, Stephen Allred says, thank you for the intro to Sam. He's a regular reader of Cyrus Mehta. Cyrus Mehta is a brilliant immigration attorney, also my professor from law school, um, who writes the insightful immigration blog. But so now we've got a new ILW convert in Stephen. So thank you, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Uh-huh. So uh, a quick point I will mention. Cyrus started writing uh, on ILW before he had his blog. Uh, <laughs> I see. He's a spinoff. Uh, he's a spinoff. <laughs> and then Sheen Pueblo says, really inspiring and another interesting discussion. So thank you. Thank you, Sheen. Appreciate that. Um, so I kind of want to pick up on what you just said, which is that we ain't we ain't seen nothing yet. And I, as you know, am a hundred percent behind that notion that it's just getting started. The ball is just starting to roll, and it's going to be picking up more and more and more uh, over the next five to ten years, maybe even less. Now, I'm curious. I wanted to start off first by by asking you, kind of, where is ILW now, right? Um, you know, so I go to the ILW.com website. There are a lot of resources. There's a lot of information on there. Where is the company now, perhaps in terms of what you do, what you deliver, and um, how the, the company is structured? Yeah, it's very simple. I mean, we've uh, physically always been in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, about a few years ago, we opened up a team. We have a team now in India, Bombay, India. It's a very small team. Most of us are still here in, uh, in Midtown Manhattan. Um, uh, the point is that uh, in terms of where we are as a company, because of the Great Recession 10 years ago, we had to reinvent ourselves. So we went through a very, very, very hard time from 2010 to 16. Um, you know, we we piled up another million dollars in losses. Uh, you know, and me and my business partner Shrikant, we put everything we have to keep the company going into the company, and um, we reinvented ourselves as a marketing company. And marketing has a very similar skill set to publishing, particularly online. Uh, so it's not that big of a paradigm change. We continue to do publishing. You know, we've 
had a few books out in these last few years. Uh, we want to put together a seminar. We have no doubt that we can put together 100, 200 attorneys uh, uh, at the drop of a hat uh, for any particular subject that might be important. And it might be, um, you know, with, with what's going on in immigration or is expected to happen in the next few months. So we might return to seminars if we have to. But um, it's it's um, uh, what we really have been doing is marketing. And uh, we, we, we experimented with marketing for a number of law firms. Um, uh, we've done that for a number of law firms and, and for a number of other, other people who needed marketing services. But we eventually ended up in the because we didn't want to leave immigration. We wanted to remain in the immigration space. And so the question was, where would our marketing um, efforts be most needed? And um, uh, we found a niche in EB-5 marketing. So we've done over 350 in-person events, uh, EB-5 events in over 15 countries. Um, in the COVID era, we moved everything online. We've done dozens and dozens of webinars in over 20 countries. Um, it's the marketing is what has kept us going. So we are an uh, immigration marketing company, but we have always called ourselves an immigration publishing company. We, are, we don't believe those are two very different skill sets. Uh, we expect that uh, over the next few years, you know, we uh, will be active in both publishing and marketing um, in uh, immigration because we, you know, there's a good chance a new era will dawn very soon. With um, it's in the hands of the people now, right? They have to decide whom they want. Uh, and if they decide that um, they they want to uh, bring uh, Mr. Biden into the White House, that will it's possible that that will uh, bring uh, many many changes which are overdue in immigration. You know, Congress is likely to take that up. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when you say just to, just to clarify a little bit, when you say marketing, you're helping market uh, organizations, companies, events. Um, it sounds like you're putting on events both virtually now and more so uh, in person prior to COVID. Yeah, we put uh, those who are seeking immigrant capital in front of immigrants and those who represent immigrants throughout the Got world. It. Right. Understood. Got it. No, that, that's cool. I mean, I, I love, you know, for this show really is exploring both the intersection of technology and marketing for the immigration industry. So I think you're kind of like this perfect apex of both. <laughs> um, so just just as a as a as a quick note. Um, Andrew Wilson said, well, now I'm scared. I can barely keep up with technology today. <laughs> um, well, um, it's, it's, I'm not sure. Uh, I would say that it, I, if I were in his shoes, I would be scared 20 years ago because the learning curve for technology was very steep. Uh, I think in the next five years, the learning curve for technology conceptually might, might require you to think. But in terms of technical skills, will actually get easier. So there's no reason to be afraid of change. I think... Uh, um, uh, change, whether we like it or not, is coming. So, and it's coming across the world and across every industry. Immigration is just one. Yep, I agreed. And you know, maybe from the perspective of uh, um, technological adoption, good user interface design is key right now in terms of technical adoption. And a strong user interface, just like an iPad or an or or an uh, you know um, an iPhone, if uh, if a child can use it, an adult can use it. And so they make it as clear and easy as possible, which I think to your point means that you don't have to be a coder in order to understand how to use the next big thing that what you know comes out on the technology side. Um, but so, okay, great. So where ILW is now, you know, in terms of marketing, and then there's this sort of combination of marketing and, and publishing right now with digital, hopefully... Uh, we will get back to being in person at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, and so surely there's going to be, you know, you're going to go back to doing some in-person events in combination perhaps with some um, virtual events. Now, I, I, I'm curious about your thoughts in terms of perhaps maybe broader kind of 
immigration technology. So one of the things that I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of different founders here. So, you know, we've talked to folks like Umesh, right? And, and yourself, you were in the space 20 years ago, really where it was case management. You helped lawyers and, and still today, this of course is very prominent, helping lawyers manage their immigration caseload, right? Um, now, what's cropped up in the last 10 years, right, is this new direction that technology has taken within the immigration space, which is a little bit more of, as they say, the turbo tax of immigration, right? Where individuals for family or in some cases, business uh, context can go and in essence, apply for their own visa. Now, folks have been doing this forever. There are people who do their own H-1B and O-1, but it's highly likely that they might mess something up and they want to use a lawyer. So this is sort of that in-between, right? Where you utilize the help of a tech solution or platform. You know, there's some legal support perhaps in the back, but it's a very different business model than I'm going to go to a lawyer from moment zero and they're going to use technology to handle the case on their end. Here, it's me using technology. Um, now, I think that is something that's maturing right now. Uh, and my opinion is that we're at the cusp of another layer of immigration technology, which is this niche product. So that's where I think I'm trying to be in laborless, right? We're not trying to take over the world. We're trying to do one specific thing really, really well. Um, there are other similar companies that are trying to do one specific thing in immigration well, because they know I know that other companies, if it's just on their product roadmap, it'll take a long time. It'll be one of twenty things. Let me just focus on it. Um, I, I see that I see this growing as well. Where do you see the space? Where do you see sort of maybe these three, the traditional case management, this sort of turbo tax of immigration, and then this very niche immigration tech uh, um, you know product? Where do you see all of this today? Where do you see it going? Kind of what are your thoughts on all this? Well, I mean, there's no reason why all of them can't succeed. That's very important to understand. And there's, uh, the, all of them can be more widely used. The evolution of the relative importance amongst these three or the, you know, the, the, the amount of widespread adoption of the relative widespread adoption of these three is something that the market will decide. And it is not something that will necessarily flow in one direction. It may uh, seesaw a bit, uh, you know, and it may take a few more years, maybe five years before it settles down. But what I would like to talk about, if it's okay with you, uh, um, uh, is I want to talk about two broad technological trends that I see, which will affect all those three points you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so firstly, I want to point out, and again, I'm, I'm not making any political commentary, not am I pretending that I, I understand what's going on, but I am saying that we have had, um, since 1999 till today, um, uh, seven votes on the floor of Congress um, uh, on, on significant immigration reform. In all those cases, it was comprehensive, but even if it isn't comprehensive, any kind of significant com immigration reform. And we won three times. We prevailed three times in terms of getting more immigration benefits, right? Um, and, um, and the idea, of course, in our system is we have to prevail twice in the same Congress, right? And then it goes to the president for signature. Now, the point is that uh, in, any, in politics, uh, you know, it's, it's like uh, the, 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 the impetus for change kind of builds up gradually like water behind a dam. And at some point, the pressure behind the dam becomes irresistible and the dam breaks. And then you get uh, a huge amount of new legislation with new benefits, right? So for everyone in the immigration space, what's the fundamental product? It's a visa, either a permanent or a temporary one. If the quantity of visas suddenly were to increase three times, five times, 
that would increase the whole space suddenly enormously. And I suspect that that is going to happen. It may not happen necessarily in a comprehensive way. It may happen like it has in the past. We had, uh, you know, we, we had Urca and then we had Imac 90, right? It took it, uh, over a period of four years. And uh, we, it may take two Congresses or more to get all the various parts of what was once called comprehensive immigration reform. But it is not, there's no doubt in my mind that there's going to be uh, significantly increased immigration benefits coming not only in this decade, but in the next few years. And there's going to be probably married to that uh, significantly increased enforcement, which also creates um, uh, uh, things that people must address, you know, people, corporations, individuals and attorneys. Now, what is the biggest bottleneck? I mean, on the one hand, people like Zoom and Logix and Tracker and many others, many other companies have made, uh, including Laborless, have made the, the uh, employment side of the immigration equation an incredibly um, uh, productive one in terms of getting a lot of work done with very, very little expense, you know, and by keeping the cost of the processing down by using technology, what it has done is it has dramatically enabled a situation which was unthinkable 20 years ago, where you have a million H1s in the United States. I mean, that would have been a, impossible, you know. Today, an immigration law firm with five attorneys or 10 attorneys is considered, you know what, just another law firm. Whereas, whereas when EMAC 90 was uh, enacted, there was a whole grand total of one law firm in the country which had more than five lawyers, right? That, that law firm today is called Fragoman, right? Okay. They had six lawyers at the time. Uh, roughly, roughly six, could be a little bit more, but not much more, maybe 10. Uh, so my point is that what is going to happen realistically is there's going to be... Uh, Technology is going to create opportunities in every industry in the next few years. But in immigration in particular, if on top of technology, we have a, a, a climate in Congress where we have many, many more benefits, that's going to create way more technology opportunities than it would just by itself. So the immigration space is a space of limitless opportunity, as I see it in the coming two to three years. Secondly, the bottleneck really is USCIS. I mean, there are many other government agencies, right? And government agencies in general uh, have been conservative in their adoption of technology, but USCIS is uh, in a class by itself. It's in the Stone Age. I mean, look at what OMB, which runs the entire federal bureaucracy of a million people, look at what they've been saying every year for the last 10, 15 years or more. They've been saying there's only one agency that really sucks, and that's USCIS, you know? <laughs> And, and, um, and uh, I mean, it's incredible that they still want paper filings done, right? So how do you fix that? So my, my comment on this one line of thought is that the real way to fix that is to ask us ourselves, why is it that USCIS has had such poor data management, such, such incredibly low productivity, and such scathing rebukes from OMB for such a long time? And the answer really is that it's funded by user fees and not funded by Congress directly through taxpayer appropriations, because that is what insulates USCIS from proper congressional oversight and enables USCIS to abuse um, its customers, you know, whether they be corporations or individuals and uh, the, uh, the poor attorneys who are caught in the middle trying to help, uh, you know, move the cases along. Um, so I think if we got rid of user fees or at least put some portion of USCIS's funding to come from uh, tax appropriations, congressional oversight will do the rest. I mean, they'll straighten out this agency in a hurry, you know, and, and, and as that agency gets sorted out, I mean, we will find more and more opportunities for technology 
um, and for and for general productivity improvement. So that's my one line of thought. But there is a. It's, it's interesting that you say that. I, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to jump in there because my instinct would be that if you are funded by your users, um, you would be you would feel more compelled to help them have a better uh, experience. Although, as I say that, I think. Well, the users have no other options. USCIS they, them No, 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 no. It's not a matter of having options. It's a matter is they don't have recourse. They don't vote. That's the difference. If you are the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Agriculture is abusing you repeatedly over a period of time, eventually your senator and congressman are going to hear about that, right? And and they're going to haul up the proper uh, you know executives there to before Congress and demand a response and a, and, and, and results for the monies that are appropriated. That's the difference. If you have user fees for an agency where there is no voting by the people whom it is abusing, then there is no recourse, and that's the problem. But let me come to the other one, which might be even more interesting to the audience. Look, what has happened is that, um, you know, ILW, what have, we have, have, what have we done, actually? If you look back at it, suppose I were to go under a truck today, what would I have left behind? I mean, what I have done is, is helped, and, and many other people eventually, it's not just me after all, um, is to assist in increasing the speed of flow of information. That's what you are doing here, Roman, through our people who are listening to this live and those who will hear this in, 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 on the podcast. We are in increasing the flow, the speed of the flow of information. And people like Omesh and, and the others at Tracker and Logics, what have they done? I mean, and, and also at Laborless, what have you done? You've made, by, you've made the cost of technology low, right? So it's faster speed, lower cost. Now let's take a step back and look at America, right? Faster speed, low cost. How did it happen? It happened, it's happening everywhere, not just in immigration. It is automation and uh, technology in particular, but automation in general, technology applied to automation is what is doing all this. And in the last 10, 20, 30 years, it's really been, especially in the last 20 years, it's revolutionized manufacturing. And Six Sigma is what captures it, right? And I spoke on immigration and Six Sigma at SHRM at the Society for Human Resources Management, and that was 15 years ago, and I explained how, you know, maybe Six Sigma can be brought into services, right? We can learn, I mean, we are the, you know, even today, we are the second largest manufacturing industry on the planet. America is number two in the world after China, um, and, and we're certainly way better than China as far as manufacturing productivity is concerned. There's no question about that. We are the world can, leaders. Can you Can you explain a little bit to folks what, and very quickly, what Six Sigma is? Right. So Six Sigma is essentially, in, in manufacturing, what we found out uh, is that that fix, focusing on errors and, and trying to reduce the quantity of errors surprisingly helped the entire processes around manufacturing to improve to a point where you could make a widget for much lesser price, far better quality, in far lower time, and a much greater customer satisfaction and everything Everything in manufacturing turned to hinge after decades of trial and error on this error prevention. So what you do is you measure the errors and then you find ways to reduce the errors. So, you know, what I said at the SHRM meeting uh, 15 years ago was that you don't have to do Six Sigma in immigration. Two Sigma is enough. Six Sigma is simply six digits of error correction, right? So if you have one error per 100 and you're trying to reduce one error, that's one Sigma. You try to reduce errors down to, you know, uh, uh, 0.1, then it's it's two Sigma. So I said two Sigma is enough. Two Sigma is enough in immigration uh, and, and we'll be able to get in many places, you know, by, by measuring what we do and then by 
applying the science of error reduction and what we have learned from manufacturing and applying it to services. And this is true not just for immigration. It's true for the whole economy. In our economy in America, even though we are number one in manufacturing in terms of productivity and number two in terms of size, our economy as a whole, manufacturing is a tiny part of it. It's, it's a, services is much, much bigger. So the amount of benefit we as Americans can get, right, uh, from putting technology into services, including immigration, is enormous, right? But things have changed. Six Sigma is now only the tip of the iceberg. Things are now moving very fast in technology. So I think AI is coming. Um, and it is coming again. It's the same thing. If you can't have measurement, you can't have AI. If you can't have measurement, you can't have Six Sigma. Measurement is the heart of everything, right? And measurement is what is coming into our world. So my point is that, yes, USCIS is, if you want to put both my trench together, USCIS is a bottleneck. And eventually Congress is going to have to solve that monster. Uh, but, but there is this other point that is going on, this other stream of change in uh, the American services sector because of AI, right? Which immigration is going to be subject to. So the opportunities, as I said, are limitless for two reasons. We have not only technology as a, as a reason for optimism and inspiration for opportunities in the next few years, but on top of that, we have reached a point where the dam seems to be about to break. And we are you know, hopefully going to get an enormous amount of help from Congress in terms of better immigration statutes and better regulations from a new administration. And I think we should all prepare for it. The election is only a few days away. You know, it's it's um, we have a comment here from Andrew Wilson on that point, who says USCA has made it clear that they are at least trying to be an enforcement agency now and not a service agency that takes away money. It could be used for technical updates. Um, and, and so, you know, Andrew is saying it's clear that USCIS does not care about the service and efficiency of what they do. How do you feel about that? Well, there's two parts to that, right? One part goes back to my point about congressional oversight, right? If they were dependent upon congressional appropriations for oversight, you know, for getting their money, I mean, and subject to congressional oversight and not in a position to extort fees from people uh, and extort, I mean, the, 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 the real insult to the injury is the premium processing fee. You know, first of all, they're super inefficient. And then on top of that, they want to charge you for being inefficient. I mean, that's just awful. That's just awful. But my point is that, yes, congressional, if, if, if 30% of USAIS's budget had to be appropriated and could not be re recovered through user fees, you would see change in a hurry coming, even, even if they had this illusion that they are really an enforcement agency, number one. Number two, are they really an enforcement agency? It's not for them to say. It's the statutes that set forth what they are. I'm not certain, I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm not certain that the statutes permit USCIS to view themselves as an enforcement agency. They are a benefits agency absolutely by statute. Now on top of that, can they do some level of quality control? Yes, oh, absolutely, sure. But does that make them an enforcement agency? I, I would defer to those whose knowledge of the Immigration and Nationality Act is, is much more profound than mine and who understand the act more. But I would be skeptical, at, at, at least on the surface, to accept USCIS's claim that they're an enforcement agency merely because they feel like being one. I, I, um, Andrew had another um, point here, which is about something we spoke about a little bit earlier, uh, saying we, we were talking about uh, some of these TurboTax for immigration apps, if you will. Um, and, you know, Andrew said, I'd like to advise individuals on, on filings that they could reasonably do on their own, but... Unless an immigration law becomes less complicated, TurboTax model 
seems less than perfect. There are too many nuances in the law and regulation. So my point of view on that, just very briefly, is that um, there's probably enough room for both. There are a good number of cases out there that are relatively simple. And even if um, those folks are not in the millions, there are still many of them. And for them to be able to benefit from a lower cost service model would be great and would allow them to actually have some level of handholding versus trying to do it themselves and be more likely to mess something up. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that as someone who, you know, you obviously provide information which can, I, I suppose, be used by people to educate themselves. At the same time, you are a pioneer in the technology side of things, supporting the law, the lawyer model. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, I think there's going to be a threefold approach, okay, in the long run. Uh, to address coming back to your point about these three different ways of software, I would say that firstly, uh, technology is going to be you know omnipresent and it's going to be everywhere, helping every element, every person conduct information transactions uh, at at high productivity, uh, high speed, and high eventual outcomes for what what is being sought from the process. So that's one component. The second component is that I don't think that for something as complicated as immigration law, that you're going to be able to actually remove an attorney from the process. My feeling is that attorneys will always be involved. The, 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 the art remains to get attorneys focused on the issues that need a legal mind, not issues of you know compiling papers for USCIS in a, in a packet. I mean, that's paralegal work. And uh, unfortunately, there's, you know, attorneys are, are compelled to do that to some extent because of the way in which immigration, you know, I mean, there's just to understand the order in which you put your, your, your check and your uh, G28 and, 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 you know, the form versus the supporting documents. I mean, your CIS and, and the way they treat all those documents when they come into their uh, mailrooms, uh, that's not something. So the attorney, I think, has to remain involved in the strategic part of the making decisions and, and guiding people through the whole process. That's my opinion. The third point is that no matter which way you cut the cake, there's going to be an enormous amount of paralegal work too. So there are three elements, you see. There's paralegal work, legal work, and technology work. And how are they going to be combined? My suspicion is that eventually, five years or maybe even 10 years from now, we will end up with a very powerful technology package where attorneys' involvement might be as little as 10 or 20%, but it will be focused on the highly valuated areas of the law, getting attorneys a very high dollars per hour and still delivering an extremely low overall cost to the, to the end user. And a lot of the paralegal work, as far as I can see it, I, I imagine, especially if USCIS can move things online, a lot of the paralegal work is going to move overseas, okay, especially to India, all right? Uh, so uh, the globalization is everywhere, and I cannot imagine why why it won't be there in immigration. Immigration in the immigration industry will also be affected by globalization, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so my point is that th that's where I think all the three will come together. So uh, can mm -hmm. a TurboTax approach work? Can a case management approach work? Can something which is highly niche focused work? All the three can work, but the three things which I think the principles which will affect all the three will be one: you cannot eliminate the attorney. Two, if you don't use maximum technology, you're not really taking the benefit of what's out there. And three, if you have to do paralegal work, which to some extent you will have to, then uh, especially in volume, uh, I, I don't see how you can continue to do that uh, in large scale in America. So what do you think, you know, for folks listening out there, if someone says, wow, 
there's clearly a movement towards greater technology adoption in one way or another within the immigration space. What should they be building? What should they be thinking about? What's the next thing that folks should be putting their minds and effort into from the technology perspective in immigration? Well, that's a very interesting question and a broad one. I I can only take a quick stab at it. Um, I would say that the most important thing, if you want to prepare yourself for the technology boom, which is about to come, it's been delayed by COVID, but it can't be denied by COVID. It will come. As it comes is to ensure that, remember, business is always ultimately about people. Organizations are always, each individual in the organization counts, in every organization. In creating a culture of technological learning, of, of technological friendliness inside your organization is the number one thing. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we have two teams in ILW, right? We're a tiny little company, right? But we have two teams, one in New York, one in, in India. We're a global company. Even though we are a tiny company, we are a global company. And that's true for many, many, many companies out there. Many of the folks listening to this will have similar situations. They may be working from home remotely, right? So what we do is just like everyone else. What we do is we we do um, meetings, company meetings by Zoom, right? But one of the things we do at every Zoom meeting on the agenda, I, I go around and I ask people, okay, what do you want to talk about today? And I write down items, what people want to talk about. At the end, I always say, does anyone have anything fun technology thing to share, right? I said, it doesn't have to be connected to our business. So long as it's technology related, if we all learn from it and have fun with it, that's cool. And we have been doing this now for about three, four, five, six months. We must have done about once a week, some some fun tech items. So we've done how many, 10 or 15, 20? And we found one tool, which one of our colleagues wanted to talk about. And it had, it really made a difference in one element of our business. So we are like thrilled with it. But it's, that's an example of, of, of how you can best prepare for technology. It's create a, an atmosphere of technology friendliness in your teams. Yeah. Can you share what that tool was? Yes. So it was hunter.io, and it's used to uh, you know, find email addresses. It can guess email addresses, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was not aware of it. But what, in fact, the person who came up with this idea was the least technology savvy member of our team. Right. But he had found it and he was using it whenever he was stuck and he had to email a client who he did not know the email address for. Instead of bothering me or one of our colleagues, he would go out to Hunter.io and guess the email address and he would use it. And you can do 10 of those guesses for free. Right. So that's what he was doing. And I said, Jesus, wait a second. What if we so we it took us two or three months. We said, can we use it on a large scale? Can we you know, we have a large email database um, uh, for reaching the kind of people we want. How about we try to expand it? There are people in these organizations that we want to reach, but we are not able to reach. And we used it and we got 2,000 email addresses. So, you know, it was, and it cost us some money and time. But the point is that we would never have found it if we were not. And again, some of the things that one of our colleagues did was, let's take an extreme example on the other side. Uh, It was an intern we had, and she said, oh, wait a second. I have this cool tool where you can find out where uh, there's, there's a website. I forget the name, but you can find it if you Google it. They track sharks. So hmm. any, any shark which has a GPS device installed and you can track every individual shark, you know, you can choose by species or choose by the ocean or you choose by the date when it was collected and you can track the movement of all these sharks. And it's so cool. You just watch the global map and you see all these sharks moving around, Right. And you can you can you can do their history, and you can see how where have they moved before, and where have they gone, and what did you know? So 
what was that worth for our business? Nothing, right? But you create an atmosphere of technology friendliness. And, and, and guess what? Sooner or later, you're going to bump into something you know, that's going to make a difference. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where, um, one of the, one of the most interesting, uh, points about my conversation with Umesh from Inesum was how he came across the idea where he received a FedEx package and there was a tracking number. And he thought, wait a minute, why can't we apply this same technology to immigration exactly. and just at least just track where the application is? Right. And mm -hmm. I think the, you know, he wasn't, he, he stumbled. I mean, the, the, the idea came to him, right. It, it, it really showed up at his, at his door quite literally. Um, so I think here it's the same thing. I mean, you might have fun thinking about shark technology and tracking it by species. And then somehow you might turn that back and relate to your business and say, wow, maybe there's something here in a you know broader abstract version. So I, I love that idea of just, you know, what tools that are not, quote unquote, immigration tools can you be A, using, but B, even just playing with and exposing yourself to that may or may not um, inspire you for something further. I wanted to have, there's a, a, a just a point here from Stephen who said, um, premium processing Stephen, I agree. is legal bribery and should never be allowed. I mean, there's definitely a point there to be made around, listen, we're going to do a crappy job with this, but if you pay us, we'll do a decent job. No, you should be doing a decent job, right? Because um, otherwise, it just sort of enables speed only for the rich, if you will. Um, right. No, I completely agree. Premium processing is egregious, and uh, I blame Congress for it. I don't blame USCIS. I blame Congress that they're trying to, uh, you know, abuse immigrants um, uh, using premium processing. Um, and uh, and it's it's a terrible abuse. I'm against fees in general and premium processing. I don't even, I'm speechless. I don't even have words for how awful that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes makes sense. And, you know, they obviously paused it for some time, but that didn't make things better. Um, Shiv, hey, Shiv, how are you? Shiv says, to your to Sam, to your point about outsourcing, while it may sound weird, Shiv believes foreign nationals will end up preparing their own immigration filings where possible and engage attorneys just to review the filing. So I, I think this idea is the sort of turbo tax for immigration. But, you know, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, Sam. My my view of it is that there's going to be an opportunity for both. There will always be someone who's like, let me take a stab at it and just engage you to help me out. And other people say, listen, I don't have the time. I, I don't have the wherewithal. I will pay you to do everything for me. There is room for everybody. That's my I agree. Opinion. I completely agree. Absolutely agree. And I don't see why most attorneys actually would be thrilled if they say, look, you're giving me a, a package to review. You're paying me $1,000 an hour for 30 minutes of my time to tell you, you know, what are the issues that you need to watch out for? Please sign the following, you know, disclaimers and notices that you understand that I'm giving you advice. That's it. And this is my written advice. I did the review. And this is what I, you know, at the end of 30 minutes, this is the three issues which I have spotted. If you want me to continue to work on it and spot more issues, I'm happy to do that for you. We have a separate service where for X thousand dollars, we can do the whole thing for you. But if you only want my advice, I don't see why an attorney should be offended by giving advice. What's well, wrong with giving advice and reviewing filings? Well, here, Andrew Wilson says, do the ethical, due to ethical and liability issues, attorneys would never review paperwork prepared by somebody else. Well, it depends. It depends. I mean, my point is that that happens every day anyway, right? I mean, for example, let's suppose uh, you have attorney uh, prepared work product and you want to take it to another attorney for a second opinion, right? Can't you do that? Uh, so there's separate issues. Ethics and liability are two separate issues. As far as ethics is concerned, so long as you are limiting your work and you're clearly explaining the limits of your work, right? 
I think you can ethically uh, review anything as an attorney. I don't see why not. I mean, but liability is a different story. As far as liability is concerned, um, um, you know, it depends on what your insurance policy is. It depends upon every state could be different. Um, and every insurance policy could be different even inside a state in terms of, you know, if you are a, a firm which with a tremendously good record in terms of good practices and uh, not any claims, then you may get a different sort of treatment. So uh, I, I defer to, you know, liability in your individual case as to what it is. But ethically, um, you know, I again, as it's it's um, I don't see why in almost every bar uh, uh, you would have a problem in terms of reviewing someone else's work to give your opinion on certain elements of the work. Now, if somebody wants to pay you to review the whole thing, again, I, it's just a question of cost, really, because it's a question of time, right? That's the way I see it. Yeah, no, it's a, the just a kind of, Andrew says, malpractice for sure concerns. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. review and provide guidance. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It is representation. I'm not suggesting it's not representation. Absolutely not. I completely agree with you. But representation can be limited. doesn't have to be unlimited. Yep. And, um, and um, um, uh, uh, you know, limited representation is what technology, uh, you know, makes the limits smaller is what I'm suggesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. And, and it can support you in, in that limited representation, make mm-hmm. your job faster, easier. Because yeah. let's not forget, you're still providing the same level of service, but maybe instead of emailing back and forth, you use a centralized portal, right? Or instead of sending documents via an attachment, you're uploading it to something that's more secure and cloud-based. And so your representation might be theoretically the same as it was before, but practically and operationally better via technology. And I think that's where, you know, we can all agree that we can leverage technology to make that side better. Um, So I I wanted to kind of ask you one last question here. From your perspective, where do you think ILW is going to play a role sort of as, as the, you know, as we come out of COVID, this there's increased, Technology, as you as you were mentioning, both from the government side, maybe there's going to be some congressional changes, and of course, in the practitioner side. Um, what's your view of ILW's role, sort of, in this five to ten year horizon? Well, we'll certainly continue to publish information. There's no doubt about that. Immigration Daily ain't going nowhere. Okay, so long as my knees are able to keep me w- vertical, I'm I'm going to come to work every day, and we're going to make get it out every day. Um, but about apart from that, I mean, we are hoping, especially if the benefits uh, landscape changes, to be able to offer more services, possibly more technology-enhanced services uh, to all the players in the field. You know, we, we certainly will continue doing what we are doing. Um, we certainly do marketing, but we are looking forward to uh, perhaps integrating marketing with uh, paralegal services uh, wherever it's appropriate. If we had known at the time of DACA uh, what we know today, we would have done it then. We did more DACA events uh, in the first three months after DACA was announced than any institution in the United States except the Catholic Church. Okay, so wow. we did dozens and dozens of events in dozens and dozens of cities across the United States. And if we had rolled in a bit of paralegal services with it, it would have been much more valuable, both to the community, DACA community, as well as to the attorneys who sponsored those events. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we expect to uh, definitely be very active. Um, in the immigration space in the coming years. And technology will be part of our story as it will be part of everyone's story. Everyone listening to this, technology is going to be part of your life. And uh, if you welcome it, you will get more out of it. Absolutely. So as a, as a kind of a fun um, closing off question, if you had to go back to college right now to 
to, 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 to complete your family's dream, what do you think you'd study? <laughs> knowing, knowing, you know, knowing everything you know now, what do you think you would study and no, major? No, no, I, I am not headed back to college. And it's not a question of family's dream. It was their concern that I yeah. might somehow... Um, you know, I did reconcile with both my parents over this. Uh, my father, of course, is no more, but my, my mother and father both came to me uh, about 20 years ago. They looked at, you know, those 2000 books I had at home and they could see that I was reading them. And they said, I, we can't, you know, um, we've seen that you are, you are, you're, uh, you've, you've become what we thought, you know, every child is different. Every child has their own, uh, own abilities. And as parents, you know, you, you, you want your child to be as good as they can be, no more or no less, right? Uh, you don't want to push them beyond their ability. And at the same time, you don't want them to um, underachieve either. You want them to be the best that they can be. And uh, so they, they looked at me and they said, you know, you, you have become the kind of uh, uh, a studious person that we thought you could be. And uh, we are very proud of you for having done that. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy with that. I'll continue learning my whole life. Uh, there's, I'm sure, at least another 10,000 books to go, probably more. Um, and, uh, but, but structured learning is not for me. I'm on the unstructured side. <laughs> well, just so you know, your people are nominating you for honorary PhD. So <laughs> thank you. Sanjay. <laughs> that, that's a good, that's a good, uh, uh, middle ground there. Um, well, Sam, thank you so, so much. This is a great, you know, so insightful, so much information. We covered a lot in terms of both, um, political history and, you know, the future of where things might go. Um, where where you are and, and where ILW is and, and how technology is definitely going to uh, um, shift the practice of immigration. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for, for joining and uh, for sharing your time here with us. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being here.